This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're at the Stone Age World Heritage Site that needs no introduction. I'm very lucky in that I do get to go inside Stonehenge quite a lot, but I always jump at the chance to do it because it's always different and always special. As the team prepare for the annual summer solstice celebrations. The last few years, it's been quite nice, it's been quite, quite good, and we had a spectacular sunrise last year. It was wonderful. And we'll discover how the solstice is linked to other stone circles. More from our experts Susan Greeny and Heather Sabir in just a few moments. But first, let's see what else is on the horizon over the next few episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. Essentially, humans have been wearing clothes for tens of thousands of years. So fashion history really stretches back as far as humanity. Coastal areas have been popular since way back in history. Even in Roman times, the wealthy used to go down to the coast. And we know that Mercia Island in Essex was a sort of destination for wealthy Romans living in Colchester. Earl Ranulph, the sixth Earl of Chester, when he started building Beeston in 1225, he wanted it to be a massive fortress, visible for everyone to see. And originally, the walls were all painted white, so it really would have been a beacon in the landscape. Now, it stood for some four and a half thousand years. It's a World Heritage Site, and of course an English Heritage Site, that inspires visitors daily. But at Stonehenge, the most compelling time to visit is the summer solstice, when thousands of visitors come to watch the sunrise between the stones. To find out more about that ancient event on the celestial calendar, I'm meeting senior properties historian at English Heritage, Susan Greeny, and senior property curator, Heather Sabir. Well, it's eight o'clock in the morning. And as I look in my rearview mirror, it looks as though my first guest has arrived as well. I meet Susan Greeny first, a specialist in British prehistory and a senior properties historian for English heritage. So, Susan, as we head back in time towards the stones, what do we know about Stonehenge? Who built it and for whom? Stonehenge was built in around 2500 BC, so that's about four and a half thousand years ago, and it's built in a time called the Neolithic. And this is a time of people farming, people keeping domestic cattle, pigs, and these are the people who are living in the British Isles at the time, are the people who build Stonehenge. And we believe that they build it as some form of temple, a prehistoric temple. And the crucial fact about it is that the way the stones are aligned with the movements of the sun. So it has some relation to the changing seasons, to the movement of celestial bodies. What do most scientists agree was the main purpose? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, when you mention purpose, it doesn't have a purpose like it's a settlement or a defensive site or anything like that. It is a religious monument. So it was built for the purpose of some sort of religious ceremonies. What exactly they were and how people understood the world around them at that time, it's very, very difficult to know. But we have got some clues. So as archaeologists, we can look at the objects found in the area. We can look at um, uh, the layout of the stones themselves, how they were worked, how they were shaped. And we have an awful lot of information from a nearby settlement at a place called Durrington Walls, which is where we think the builders of Stonehenge lived. 
The landscape, as we look across left and right now, the landscape has opened up. We're beyond the bushes. And Stonehenge, of course, sitting nobly as we look towards the distance there. Was it more wooded here thousands of years ago? No, we think the landscape when Stonehenge was built looked pretty similar to today. So open grazed pasture that would have been really valuable grazing land for people with their herds of cattle and their herds of um, um, sheep and pigs. And generally, this area, Salisbury Plain, which is a chalk landscape, would have been relatively open and treeless much of the rest of southern England would have been much more wooded. So it was quite unusual in that respect. And it would have really stuck out on the landscape. Yeah, so it's this kind of undulating downland is really distinctive of the Salisbury Plain area. If anyone's ever driven across it, you know, you get these really large fields and wide open skies. And Stonehenge would have looked even more spectacular in the past when it was first built because the sarsen stones would have been freshly worked. They'd have been shining quite white, grey colour. And the blue stones would have been dark blue, grey. So the monument itself would have looked quite contrasting and quite distinctive against the green landscape. Wow, I didn't appreciate that at all. It all looks more or less the same colour today. It's been there for four and a half thousand years, so there's a huge amount of weathering and lichen growth and all kinds of things that make it look very grey now, but it would have been very different at the beginning. All right, well, shall we uh, walk on down to the heelstone? Uh, yes, we start at the Hillstone. Yeah, that's the main entrance into the site, so that's a good place to start. Susan, you very kindly brought me to the Hillstone, which is one of the first stones, of course, that visitors would encounter outside the circle at Stonehenge. Yep, we're stood next to the Hillstone, which is this large, natural, slightly leaning stone. It's actually the biggest stone on the site here at Stonehenge, and it weighs about 36 tonnes. And it's placed right at the head of the avenue. So the avenue is a kind of processional approach to Stonehenge. And it's flanked by banks and ditches, so earthworks. And if we look into the field, we can actually just about make out those banks and ditches running down in straight lines down into Stonehenge Bottom, which is the dry valley that sits down there. And that's the avenue that leads all the way to the River Avon. And we think it's the route by which processions and by which people would have approached activities here at Stonehenge. I see that English Heritage have put down a big sort of arrow in what looks like brass. It's probably about 15 feet long and there's two arrowheads pointing different ways. What, what, what do they say? So that's an arrow that we've added to the site to help people understand about the solstice axis. And the crucial point about Stonehenge is that it's arranged around this solstice axis, so a straight line. If we were stood in the middle of the site on midsummer's morning, on the 21st of June, we would see the sunrise just to the left of the heel stone, along in a straight line with the first part of the avenue. And in the opposite direction, 180 degrees the other way, towards the southwest, we would see on the shortest day of the year, the sun setting right between the two tallest stones at the head of the horseshoe of Sarsons. So the site is aligned on this special solstice axis. And there's some debate amongst archaeologists as to whether it was the summer solstice that was more important or the midwinter solstice. And there's some evidence that it's the midwinter solstice that people were celebrating here, partly because of the way the site's arranged. So we are approaching the site with the midwinter solstice ahead of us, a bit like a church where you would have the altar ahead of you. It would be a bit strange to come into a monument or a building and turn around to see the main important part of the site. The other point is that this settlement quite near to here called Derrington Walls that was occupied at the same time as Stonehenge shows some evidence for feasting around midwinter. So this evidence comes from animal bones, particularly pig bones, and they are of about nine months old. So these pigs are being probably farrowed in the spring and being killed in massive numbers around midwinter. So that suggests that people are gathering at that site, having large feasts and potentially coming and celebrating the midwinter solstice here at Stonehenge. Can we go to the centre soon? Yep. 
So we're now going to walk towards the middle of the stone circle. So we're walking up the end of the avenue and through a causeway. If you can see just in front of us, there's a flat area of grass and either side there are some ditches. This is the henge of Stonehenge. This is the earthwork enclosure that goes all the way around the outside of the stone circle. And what does henge actually mean? Henge is an archaeological term for an, a circular earthwork enclosure. It's a name that comes from Stonehenge, so this was one of the first to be recognised. There's a kind of annoying technical debate about the fact that Stonehenge isn't really a henge because it has its bank and its ditch the other way around, but it's basically an early type of henge. So there tend to be sacred and ceremonial enclosures. So as we approach Stonehenge, we're looking at this facade. This is the side of Stonehenge that was most closely worked and finished. It's the side with the most regular stones. We know from looking very carefully at the stoneworking evidence that this side of the monument was carefully hammered and, and bashed with hammer stones to give a really kind of white, shiny surface. And it's this side of the monument that's the best preserved, so we can get a really good impression of how quite spectacular this would have appeared, especially if you're a prehistoric person who has never seen a monument like this before in your life. I'm a modern person. I've never walked into this particular area ever before in my life. And I must say, it's very imposing, magnificent. And the colours, as you described just now, obviously we've got a lot of light greys. The sarsen colour is a, is a very light grey, a sort of sandy grey. So it's actually a kind of sandstone. Uh -huh. So if you can see, just there are some patches where it's a lot lighter grey colour, so almost white. Uh, That's okay. the colour of the sarsen stones when they were originally worked and shaped. Wow. And that would have contrasted hugely with the much smaller stones that we can just see peeking up between the large sarsen stones. And those are the blue stones and clues in the name that we've given them and that they're a kind of dark blue. How often have you been around the stones? Uh, quite a number of times. It's always special though, a lot. I do a lot of media and I do a lot of members tours and that kind of thing. So I'm very lucky in that I do get to go inside Stonehenge quite a lot, but I always jump at the chance to do it because it's always different and always special. I've never done it before. I've got to say, I'm getting a bit of goosebumps, I have to say. It's, um, it's, it's really interesting. So what we're going to do now is walk into the stone circle between stones one and 30 of the outer sarsen circle. So this, we're actually on the solstice axis here. So if we stand about here, we can look through that gap we've just walked through. We can see the heel stone. to the heel stone, where the sun would rise in midsummer. And 180 degrees in the other direction, the sun at midwinter would set between the two tallest stones of this trilithon. Now, when we say trilithon, we mean two upright stones and a horizontal one. And we're missing one. Yeah, so this, this trilithon itself has half fallen down. So one half of the upright and its lintel that would have sat on top have fallen down towards us. But originally that would have had quite a narrow rectangular slot between the two stones and the sun would have set into that slot and descended down into the altar stone, which is a a stone that sits right in the centre of Stonehenge. Has there been any attempt to put these back together? Not those particular stones. That one, if you, when we get a bit closer, you'll see it's broken in half. Um, ah. And it has actually got quite a shallow foot, so a shallow bottom. So it seems when they were building it in prehistory that they didn't have a stone that quite matched the tallness of this one. It's about just over seven metres tall. And they have actually buried the stone in quite a shallow stone hole. So that's the reason why it's fallen down. Ah. And we don't know when that stone fell. We do know that it was fallen already by 1740, which is when we have the most accurate earliest plan of the site. So because we don't know when it fell, to reconstruct it might be making up something that never stood. So it, there is an idea that perhaps that fell down when they were building Stonehenge and it was never finished. 
So because we don't know when it fell down, it's not been restored. There are other stones here that have been restored in modern times because they were there and standing in the 1740 plan. Wow. I'm just trying to get a sense, look at standing around and doing a bit of a 360 about just what it would have been like complete. It must have felt quite enclosed. Yes, definitely. Really enclosed, especially because you're in this really wide open plain with these big skies. To come into this space does feel quite intimate and quite enclosed. We're looking at the Sarsen Horseshoe, which is made up of five trilithons. So we have one standing to our left and two. The one at the top, which is the one we've been talking about, which is half fallen down. A fourth one over there, that one actually fell down in 1797 and was put back upright in 1958. And a fifth one, which is also partially fallen down here. So this is the centre of the monument. And then it's surrounded by the Sarsen Circle, which is 30 uprights and 30 lintels. Obviously, a huge number of those are now missing, um, having been fallen down and, and pilfered for roadstone and things like that in the intervening years. When you arrive, you do really have to do a little bit of imagination because obviously you are looking at a kind of a ruin and... Had you not known the plans, it would be quite hard to imagine exactly what's going on. And thank goodness you're here explaining it to me. <laughs> One thing we tend to do, particularly with members that come in or tour groups that we take around, is give them 10 minutes to have a wander around, take photographs, absorb the atmosphere, but then give them the architectural details so they can orientate themselves and they know what they're looking at. After standing on today's solstice axis, Susan then shows me how the stones and solstices would have appeared in the ancient past. Susan, we've come to the exhibition center. We're standing in the center of the CGI representation of the Stonehenge Stone Circle. At the moment, uh, it looks like it's a winter scene, which ties in nicely with a winter solstice. Most people can't come here on the summer solstice or winter solstice. So we've made a fairly accurate, as, as much as we can with a 360 degree film, version of Stonehenge. And what you see is both winter solstice and then summer solstice. So the sun actually rises on the site in, as it looks today, in the modern day. And we're looking at the heel stone there, which is where we've just been. Yeah, that's right. So we're looking out through the entrance of Stonehenge towards the heel stone, just as we saw in real life about uh, 20 minutes ago. But this gives you a good impression of the actual movement of the sun, where exactly it rises and sets. And it also gives you a sense of different seasons. So as the site changes through time, you get rain, you get snow, you get sunshine and wind. And it also shows how the site changes through time. So in a minute, if you look at where the sun is moving, it will start to move backwards. And that's the signal that we're going back in time to see how Stonehenge looked when it was first constructed. I like the way that the um, people are actually sort of signified as sort of shadows in a way. Yeah, it was sort of hazy. The idea was to give an impression of people here celebrating, but not any specific person or specific costume or activity. So it just gives you a sense of people using the site. Yeah, slightly ghostly as well in a yeah, way. Yeah, slightly exactly. mystical. Yeah. And then we're back to the present day. How would the ancients have plotted this? Would it have been with sticks and markers and...? It's relatively easy to plot the movements of the sun during the year. So you can use, yeah, sticks or a particular marker, a stone or a tree, and just plot the, where the sun rises every morning. And what they've done at Stonehenge is quite extraordinary because they've enshrined that in a very permanent way. They've built an incredibly sophisticated stone monument to mark that. They're not just marking it for the sake of marking time, there's something much more complicated going on with the monument. So marking the sun is a relatively easy thing to do. You will notice the sun rising in a slightly different part of the horizon, especially if you've got a clear view and you've got an open landscape free of trees. They, there is also some indications that Stonehenge 
in its early phase is related to the movements of the moon. So the entrance to Stonehenge, the causeway, is possibly orientated towards where the moon rises. And the cremations, which are part of the first phase of the monument, are um, particularly located in the south part of the site, in a real cluster. And that's where the major standstill of the moon is. So that's a particular point where the full moon rises, a particularly long part of the lunar cycle. So the lunar cycle is quite complicated, but there are some indications that the moon was also important, particularly in the first phase of Stonehenge. How long would it have actually taken to have planned and built and to bring all these stones in from Wales. And... We know that the monument has got several phases, so it's built over a period of about a thousand years, but it didn't take them a thousand years, it's just that it continued to be changed and altered over that period. So we think the main construction of the sarsen stones and the bringing of the blue stones probably happened in a period of around 50 or so years. The reason we think that is because the settlement near here, which seems to have been occupied at that time, was only settled and lived in for about 50 to 80 years, something like that. So that suggests a time period for how long it would have taken. But of course, we don't know when they started to bring the stones from Wales. They could well have brought the stones from Wales at an earlier date and then had them in a monument elsewhere in the landscape and brought them to Stonehenge later. It doesn't necessarily mean that they did everything all in, in those 50 years, but probably the construction of the main standing stones took around 50 years. That's quite a short period of time, really, if you think about it, given what technology they had at that time. That's right. They were using relatively simple technology, but they were expert stone workers. They had antler tools, flint tools, timber, rope, um, and there would have been a lot of people involved. So moving one sarsen stone would have taken probably something like 100 people just to move. So if you're going to gather all those people together, you need to feed them, you need to shelter them, you need to look after their children. Um, and so you want to do it as a, uh, probably as a concerted effort over a shorter period of time. It might have been that every winter they came and added a couple more stones and then they went back to their homes and continued farming and then came back. You know, it doesn't have to have been a continuous process over those 50 years, but certainly it was planned and engineered in, in one major phase. And to get the stones to be that carefully aligned and to frame the solstice in that particular way would have taken, yeah, many hours of planning and thinking. They must have been fantastic engineers and scientists in a way. Yeah, I mean, scientists is probably putting too much of a modern kind of observers. spin on it. Yeah, observers, exactly. So they would have been very adapted to living in the natural world. They would have been able to navigate, find resources, plants, medicines. You know, these were sophisticated people. They had enough time and energy and ability to build such a spectacular monument. So these were people who were not just eking out a living day to day, surviving. These were cultured and sophisticated people. Are there any other stone circles similar to Stonehenge in the Wiltshire area or indeed further afield within England? There are some other monuments in this Stonehenge landscape that are aligned on the solstices. So at Durrington Walls, there are some timber monuments. There's one called Woodhenge and there's one called the Southern Circle. Both of those are aligned on the solstices. So Woodhenge is aligned exactly the same way as Stonehenge. Southern Circle, interestingly, is aligned slightly differently. So it's aligned on the midwinter sunrise. So it's potentially possible that people processed from a midwinter sunrise to Stonehenge to see the sunset over the course of a day. It's quite a nice idea. But there are other monuments here in this landscape that are aligned. Further afield, there are also some other monuments, not stone circles necessarily, although the stone circle in the Lake District called Castlerigg may well have, it has an outlying stone, a bit like the heel stone, and that may well be aligned. 
but there's actually some passage tombs that are more commonly aligned on the solstice. So Newgrange in Ireland, which is quite a famous site, that's aligned on the midwinter sunrise. And Mays Howe, which is on Orkney, is also aligned on midwinter sunrise. So there are some sites, particularly passage tombs in Ireland and in Scotland, that are also astronomically aligned. And these are being built in around 3000 BC, so a little bit before Stonehenge, where the stones go up at Stonehenge. And that lends credence to the fact that the winter solstice is the more important of the two in, in the prehistoric calendar. That's right. There are also a couple of monuments that seem to be aligned on the equinoxes. Equinoxes is a bit debatable, but equinoxes is the midpoint of the sun cycle. So it's much more difficult to measure. It's, there's no set standing still point. But there's a monument called Loch Crewe in Ireland, which does seem to be aligned on the equinox. If you go up there on a March or a September morning, you will see the sunrise and strike a very decorated stone at the back of the passage. So there does seem to have been some alignments on other points of the year as well. But winter but solstice is particularly marked. Having covered four and a half thousand years of Stonehenge history, it's now back to the present to find out how solstice is marked today. Right, now to find Heather Sabir. She's the senior property curator at Stonehenge. And we're going to ask her some questions about the logistical aspects of organising a solstice event. Heather, we're just outside the admin building, this wooden building behind us. We're sitting on a nice bench looking at the coach park. Got some visitors arriving. You'll get lots of visitors arriving for a solstice, won't you? How many do you actually get? Well, it depends. About five years ago, we were getting up to about 30,000. We had 35,000 one year. It's dropped a little bit. That was over a weekend. And then we have been managing it slightly differently since we became a charity in 2015 so the numbers have dropped a bit and I think people maybe come one year and then don't come another year definitely the Glastonbury festival is, is a factor when Glastonbury is on we get a lot of people come to Solstice Hurst and then go to Glastonbury. It must be a massive logistical planning operation is it ticketing or how does it work do people just turn up? No, we don't have tickets. We have a lot of information on our website and we close the site to the public in the late afternoon and then from seven o'clock anyone can come in for free, but we do charge for parking. There are also buses that come from Salisbury and Amesbury and quite a lot of coaches come all the way from London actually. So this coach park will be full? Yes, it is very often full, yes, yes, indeed. And then people coming by car, if they are parking on site and not parking in surrounding areas, they can park in the visitor centre car park? Uh, some in the visitor centre car park, but we also rent some fields, so we provide extra parking on the night. And we encourage people to then walk down to the stones, but we do provide transport for anyone who can't manage to walk down. What's the weather like in the summer here for solstice? I mean, obviously, if we're talking about the English weather, it can change. It's very unpredictable. Late June, it can be absolutely glorious, but it can be wet and windy. And Stonehenge is a bit of a microclimate. We've all come to the conclusion because it can be very cool and it can be windy. Um, but the last few years, it's been quite nice, it's been quite, quite good. And we had a spectacular sunrise last year. It was wonderful. For people who do want to come and make the trip then, how are they best to prepare in terms of food and what they need to wear? Well, we hope people will be sensible because if it's a lovely evening, that doesn't mean it's going to be warm during the night. So we hope people will come prepared to be outdoors and wear sensible uh, footwear. We do provide catering outlets on the site and there are some groups that provide free food, for example, but a lot of people bring picnics with them. We do now ban alcohol. We don't allow alcohol to be taken in. So people are checked on the way in 
we bring in extra toilets as well. Extra staff on hand? Yes, we have extra staff, but we also have a lot of people volunteering to help with the solstice. So we have a group of street pastors who come and look after everyone's well-being. Because it's quite a long night. We let people in at 7 o'clock. The sunrise is usually about 4.30 a.m. And then a lot of people do leave after immediately after the sunrise. So about half past eight in the morning, then we ask people to leave. You're wearing a badge there that says respect the stones. What are the golden rules for attending (laughs) solstice in terms of respecting the stones? The main thing is just to respect the site. It is a scheduled ancient monument. It is in a World Heritage site. Inevitably, with so many people, those stones that are lying down tend to have people sitting on them which is fine, but we hope, for example, people won't stub out cigarettes on them or do anything that would harm the actual stones. So we started a campaign called Respect the Stones. It's just a way of helping people think that it is a very special place and it is a scheduled ancient monument. You know, it's more than just somewhere to go to have a good time and have a picnic. And what was your first solstice like? Can you remember it? Yeah, my first one was extremely wet, so that definitely wasn't my favourite one. I think one of my favourite ones was, I think it was the year after we had a huge number on the Friday night. and We were slightly concerned because the next one was a Saturday night and we thought we might get even more. But actually the numbers were much less on the Saturday night. And we think that maybe people just decided not to come two years running. Um, But it was a beautiful evening and there was a lovely atmosphere in the evening. There were families who had come out and it was a beautiful evening, beautiful sunset. And there was a full moon as well. That was very special. And music inside as well? Yes, there's a certain amount of music. One of the regulations is that we can't have amplified music, but a lot of people bring acoustic instruments, particularly drums. There's a lot of drumming. We had a didgeridoo one year. So apart from feeling tired... (laughs) (laughs) By about 4.30 in the morning, when it all happens, when the big moment happens. What's the feeling that you get when you do solstice? Well, I think like everybody who's there, you do get a feeling that you're witnessing something that people who were just like us have witnessed for nearly 5,000 years. So it's that continuity. I suppose it's like the equivalent of our modern day cathedrals and what have you, you know, that they carry on through generations and quite often the people who build them don't see them finished and we sort of have a feeling that that might have happened at Stonehenge that perhaps it did go on over generations you know but it's the thought that you're leaving something for the next generation I don't know it's it's hard well that's the whole thing about prehistory there's nothing written down for us to to be able to find out we have to just surmise from the archaeology it's like we're joining the dots we're joining the past and the present by celebrating solstice here. Very much so, yes, indeed. It's a modern celebration, as I say, that's a reflection of what must have happened all those thousands of years ago. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the summer solstice, just head to the English Heritage website. And if you head over to YouTube, you can also find a video from the 2018 event. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and see you next time.